Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Maltrip, Chief Executive here and a proud member. Today's August 26th. You are the Virtual City Club Forum. Welcome to you. Thank you for being with us. President Donald J. Trump's approach to foreign policy is both celebrated and criticized. And no matter who's providing the analysis, there is always recognition that his approach is a departure from the mainstream, a departure from what we might have referred to as the, quote, Washington consensus. Jim Shudo is CNN's chief national security correspondent and anchor of CNN Newsroom. His new book provides a wide-ranging assessment of Donald Trump's presidency and approach to foreign policy. That book is called The Madman Theory, Trump Takes on the World. The title is not a clinical assessment of the 45th president, rather it's a metaphor highlighting how President Trump's often unpredictable behavior has unnerved enemies and allies alike and unsettled the global order. Today, Mr. Shudo will talk about the lasting imprint President Trump has left on the world and U.S. foreign policy and how that will shape America's place in the world in the future. A friend of the City Clubs, Jim Shudo, spoke last year about his previous book, The Shadow War, which is about espionage, disinformation and other strategic power campaigns being waged by China and Russia. He was a foreign correspondent stationed in Asia, Europe and the Middle East. Mr. Shudo returned to Washington to cover the Defense Department, the State Department and intelligence agencies for CNN in 2013. He's the recipient of many awards, including the Edward R. Murrow Award, the George Polk, and the Citation for Excellence from the Overseas Press Club for his undercover reporting from Myanmar, where he bucked government restrictions to tell the stories of that country's repressive regime. Mr. Shudo will deliver some remarks and read passages from his book before turning, as we always do, to your questions. You can text those questions to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And you can also tweet them at the City Club and we'll work them in. Also, I should mention that if you'd like to get yourself a copy of the book, Max Bax on Coventry Road in Cleveland Heights is offering a 20% discount to City Club members. Members should check their email or our member Facebook page for that discount code. And before we get to the conversation, I also want to thank our generous members, sponsors, donors, and others who support these virtual forums. For a full list, visit cityclub.org slash thank you. And a reminder, too, you can join them when you support our work by making a contribution or becoming a member at cityclub.org. And now it's my pleasure to welcome back to the City Club stage, such as it is on this virtual platform, Jim Shudo. Jim, welcome back. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. Thanks to my college classmate, Noel Celeste, for also welcoming me back. I really wish I was just there again. You know, I, uh, it, it's always so fun to, to, um, to see folks face to face. And I particularly enjoyed my visit to the City Club on the last tour last year. But, but as I say to everyone these days, 2020 is the year of the endless Zoom call. So here we are. Here we are again. Occupying our little boxes. Yeah. <laughs> Doing our, doing our best to connect. But, but I'm also grateful to everyone who's joined today. Take time out of your day to, to, to listen to the, to the story behind this and, and, and some of what I found in doing the reporting uh, for this book. Go ahead. So uh, I'll start at the beginning, just, just where the Madman Theory uh, title comes from, an idea for, for crystallizing the Trump approach to foreign policy. Folks may find that term familiar from the Nixon years. Uh, Nixon was not so much the innovator of it, but, but perhaps the coiner of the phrase and certainly a practitioner of the madman theory. I recount in the book how in the depths of the Vietnam War, Nixon played it out. He, he had a conversation which was, which was recorded uh, in the White House. We have the tapes and I read the transcripts had a conversation with uh, Henry Kissinger, his national security advisor at the time, in which he instructed him to convey to North Vietnam in no uncertain terms that he, Nixon, was just mad enough to nuke North Vietnam. Uh, the intention, as discussed in that call, uh, or in that conversation rather with Kissinger, was to scare the North Vietnamese to the negotiating table and hopefully a uh, more, friendly, more friendly terms in a peace agreement to end the war. Uh, Kissinger obliged, he communicated in no uncertain terms to North Vietnam that the boss just had enough to order a nuclear strike. As it turned out, North Vietnam was not moved by it. They did not back down. They did not, uh, as the history shows, uh, give the US more favorable terms and we know how that war ended. But Nixon and his team would come to own 
the, the theory, the practice, they even called it the madman theory. H.R. Haldeman writes about it in his memoirs. Uh, they owned it. Um, it. It was based in part on Nixon's misunderstanding of what happened in the Korean War in, in that it was his impression that Eisenhower had done the same, uh, threatened to nuke the North Koreans, and that that helped in that war. Uh, I spoke with Tim Naftali, uh, a Nixon historian who who questions that telling of the Korean War, but but there were others who trace this all the way back to Machiavelli, right? Uh, make the other side think you're just crazy enough and, and somehow intimidate them or shock them into giving you, uh, giving you what you want. Now, now, 50 years after Nixon, we have Donald Trump, who uh, propagates his own version of the madman theory, though he doesn't call it that, but you've probably heard it before. I mean, even going back to his business days in, in the art of the deal, talking about uh, keeping the other side off balance, swooping in uh, late in the negotiations with a surprising demand or perhaps a surprising concession, uh, but always keeping them off balance, maintaining control and, and shocking them into concessions that you wouldn't get otherwise. Uh, as president, he has followed this similar approach uh, in the most sensitive areas of national security, though, as I recount in the book, uh, more often than not an accident uh, of his seat-of-the-pants decision-making than any sort of uh, hard, hardly delineated or thought-out strategy. It's just a product of the way he operates, changes his mind in the moment. Uh, the other innovation, if you want to call it that, of Trump's madman theory is that he's just as likely to unleash it on allies as he is on adversaries. And we saw that uh, in trade negotiations with Canada uh, and Mexico, uh, the imposition of steel tariffs on Canada, and you know for which the president declared Canada a national security threat to the US to justify those. People forget that, but he did, America's closest ally. Negotiations with NATO, uh, holding a withdrawal of troops from Europe over the heads of NATO allies, which of course, as you read in the headlines, the president is doing. Uh, he's doing the same with South Korea now, threatening to withdraw troops unless they increase their payments for the U.S. deployment there fivefold. The South Koreans resisting. Uh, we'll see if the president follows through on that. So uh, the president carries this out across the board, really. And then another shocking dimension of it is that he's just as likely to, to use the madman theory, whether intentionally or not, on his own advisors. Uh, in this book, I speak only to people who served this president, appointed by him at the highest levels, and they described multiple instances in which the president surprised his own team, contradicted his own team, contradicted stated U.S. policy, and his advisors say contradicted U.S. national security priorities in his decision-making on things from Syria to North Korea to Russia, notably, uh, and even China and elsewhere. So that is the madman theory, that's the origin of it, and that's the um, so, sort of the version of it that, that Donald Trump has uh, innovated and carried out uh, as president. Um, I'll walk you through some examples that, that I describe in the book that, that give you a sense of this. Uh, first with North Korea. Uh, the president, as you know, for four years uh, took two approaches to North Korea, and that's why I have two chapters in the book on North Korea. The first being fire and fury, the second being the love affair. Uh, but I want to zero in in particular on the tense, the most tense period between the U.S. and North Korea under Trump, and that was late 2017. It was just after North Korea had uh, tested their, it was their sixth nuclear test, their largest by far. They seemed to have perfected a thermonuclear weapon. These were tense times. This was uh, the discussion uh, of fire and fury. My nuclear button is bigger than yours. Uh, you remember this, and, and even discussion of a bloody nose military strike on North Korea. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But at the height of this, as I recount in the book, the president's own advisors held back military options from him. The Pentagon resisted giving him military options because they were concerned that the president might use them and get the U.S. and North Korea into a bloody, bloody war. It's a remarkable thing and a remarkable sign of the distrust uh, that his own advisors had in the president's decision-making. You may remember at the time this discussion of a bloody nose strike. The, the thing is, there is no one in the Pentagon who believed such a thing existed because from their view that 
any strike, even limited, would be interpreted by Pyongyang, by Kim Jong-un, as the beginning of a decapitation strike. Uh, there was no way to guarantee or even have confidence that there would be limits to escalation. Uh, and by the way, the, the U.S. military did intelligence assessments of what the death toll of a limited inter interaction with North Korea would be, and that death toll was in the tens of thousands, tens of thousands of people in the Seoul area, many of them South Koreans, but of course, many Americans, including deployed military there and their families. Uh, so with that in mind, in the heat of that, the Pentagon said, we don't want to give him these options because this might take us down a path that the, that the president doesn't want that we don't want. Joseph Yun, uh, who was the top uh, U.S. negotiator for North Korea at the time, uh, told me that in addition to that, he conveyed to his North Korean counterparts, he was concerned, he didn't know what the president was going to do, that the president was unpredictable. And that's a message they had to send to the North Korean side, because again, they didn't want uh, an unstoppable march to war. The South Koreans as well, I, I recount this in the book, uh, commiserate to some degree with their North Korean counterparts to find some sort of off-ramp because they they felt, they worried that they were going to get caught in the middle of this and that they were going to be the principal victims of this. That is an example of uh, not just Trump's madman theory in action, but how his own advisors saw the president's approach. They didn't trust his decision making and they tried to put up roadblocks as best they could to stop the commander in chief from, from putting the country on a path to war. It's a remarkable uh, indictment really uh, of the president's decision making from folks serving his administration at the highest level. That approach, that concern was not limited to North Korea. Um, with Iran, in some of the most tense moments in 2019, I was told, and this is in the book as well, uh, that uh, his, his advisors communicated to the Iranian side, again, that these rare circumstances of communications to the adversary, that they did not know what the president was gonna do. He was unpredictable. And they did that not to gain leverage with the Iranians, but to limit the risk at the time of the country, this country getting into a war it didn't want to get into, you know, based on the president's bluster, threats, et cetera. Uh, that level of concern in 2019 that his own advisors would again, as they did in 2017 with North Korea, communicate to the other side, we're nervous about this. He's unpredictable. It's a remarkable step to take. Um, there were other forms where uh, other forums where the the president's madman theory played out and where you see his advisors try to hem it in and in effect hem in the president's worst impulses uh syria is a great example of this because you had not one but two uh examples of the madman theory in action over the course of 10 months uh in december 2018 and again in october 2019 and you may remember this in december was around Christmas time in 2018 when the president had a phone call uh, with the Turkish president Erdogan. There was no discussion prior uh, about anything regarding the withdrawal of US troops from Syria. President gets on the phone, Erdogan pushes him on that, president gets off the phone, tweets out, we're done with Syria, I'm bringing home the troops, job is done. Job is done. He did not speak about this with US commanders on the ground. U.S. commanders on the ground certainly did not speak about it with our Syrian Kurdish allies, didn't talk to his national security staff, did not consult with uh, Republicans or Democrats, certainly, on Capitol Hill. In the wake of that, in the days that followed, first consternation outrage from his own most senior advisors, from U.S. military commanders, and then a question. They started asking, as I recount in the book, wait a second, do we really have to do this right away? Did the president say exactly how many U.S. forces to withdraw and by when? No, he didn't. Okay, so how about we do this? How about we withdraw several hundred of them, not all of them. At the time, they were about 2,000. They withdrew close to 1,000. What if we withdraw part of them, but keep a unit on the ground that can still accomplish the mission, defeating ISIS, protecting the Syrian Kurdish allies, and hope that his attention turns? And that's what happened. They withdrew some, but not all, and the president's attention turned, and they felt they dodged a bullet. Ten months later, 
October 2019, president gets on the phone again with the Turkish president Erdogan. No discussion in advance of a further withdrawal of U.S. forces. U.S. policy stated uh, stated U.S. policy remained the same. Erdogan pushes again, says, "Listen, I can take care of this. Withdraw from the border. Give us a buffer zone, etc." Uh, the U.S. position of Turkish intentions there, by the way, uh, is not that this was a buffer zone, but this was a Turkish incursion in there to take land away from the Kurds, who they consider their enemy. Uh, so Trump has the call, gets off the phone, tweets out again the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Syria. Same level of consternation and outrage, particularly high at this point, because with the Turks coming in, you even had Republicans outraged, and, and very much so uh, in public, talking about leaving an ally to massacre by, by, by the Turks, which by the way, did happen in, in circumstances. Many of them were, were killed by advancing Turkish forces. His advisors again say, okay, the gig is up. But then they begin to wonder, is there a way we can get around this? Is there a way that we can again keep some troops on the ground and hope that the president is satisfied with that? So they come up with a new idea, protecting the oil fields. You may remember this. The president has talked in both Iraq and Syria illegally, mind you, that the U.S. could and has every right to profit from the oil there and territory uh, that they've helped gain for people on the ground. Uh, now, the U.S. is not doing that. The Pentagon would not do that. But they said, if we characterize this mission now as protecting the oil fields, maybe we'll give something to the president to hang his hat on. And that's what they did. They again withdrew some, but not all of the U.S. forces, as, as the president had tweeted, a few hundred, but enough uh, to keep a footprint print on the ground do the counter-terror mission, help the Syrian Kurds, prevent them from being wiped out entirely, and yes, protect the oil fields, but do more. And they did that and it worked. And to this date, those forces are still on the ground uh, and still doing the counter-terror fight. And the Syrian Kurds have not been abandoned, abandoned entirely. So uh, again, with Syria, as you saw to some degree with North Korea and Iran, you see the president's own most senior advisors trying to manage right, his bad decision-making. And that's not me calling it bad decision-making, it's it's the way they viewed it. Uh, and they viewed it that way, not so much as a matter of judgment, though they did have that judgment, but based on explicit U.S. national security policy uh, for what the mission was there, fighting ISIS, uh, protecting the Syrian Kurds, uh, and trying to hold back uh, Iranian forces, uh, Russian forces, et cetera, that have been taking advantage as the U.S. has, re has retreated. Um, again, it's a remarkable indictment of the president's uh, decision-making. Now, in this book, uh, as I mentioned, I spoke only to people who served in this administration, appointed by this president, served at the highest levels. You do have those critics uh, from Joseph Yun on North Korea, Fiona Hill on Russia, uh, members of the senior Pentagon staff under Mattis uh, on Syria, Iran, and other issues. You do, of course, have the president's defenders. And for this book, I spoke to Peter Navarro and I spoke to Steve Bannon, and they will still claim that, yes, the president keeps everybody off balance, allies and adversaries, but you know what? The allies kind of deserve it too. It's remarkable. I, I have this exchange in the book with Peter Navarro regarding Canada, and, and, and this uh, this made headlines in Canada yesterday, by the way, because uh, a Canadian reporter reached out to me, read the book and said, did Navarro really say this about Canada? And I said, yes, he did. And I, I shared with him actually the audio uh, of our interview. Um, but I, I want to read this section here because it gets to uh, sort of a general, you know, the extent of the madman theory and, and as it applies not just to adversaries, uh, but to our closest friends. Um, and by the way, this is making headlines across Canada today uh, because, well, understandably, Canadians have bled with U.S. soldiers from Normandy all the way to Afghanistan, and they still are today. Uh, this is uh, from early in the book. I reminded him, this is uh, Peter Navarro, I reminded him how bravely Canadian forces have fought and continue to fight in Afghanistan. Canada provided forces without the restrictions on frontline operations other allies demanded, and they paid with their lives. On several embeds in Afghanistan, I could always spot the Canadian forces because they would build a wooden roller hockey rink to satisfy their ice hockey obsession. They paid their dues in blood. And here's Navarro. 
were they doing us a favor or were they bought into the idea that they needed to do that as part of the global effort against terrorists? I mean, if they were just doing us a favor, maybe their government should have been thrown out of office. I mean, every time that a Canadian shows up in uniform, it's doing us a favor. How's that? How's that work? Um, let's take Canada. I mean, what's good about Canada? Navarro asked. They have some of the highest dairy barriers to entry of any country in the world. What's good about that? What's good about Canada being a transshipment point now for some of the Chinese stuff that we've been countervailing? It's just Canada. It has its own national interests and self-interests. So that's Peter Navarro, the president's trade advisor by title. But as you've seen uh, with his forward uh, position, even on the coronavirus response, this is one of the president's closest advisors on a whole host of things. Dismissing, um, really, I mean, America's closest ally, I guess, with Britain, you know, vying for a position at the top. Uh, but that is the way that they view that this they view even our friends, uh, that this madman theory applies to everyone. And, and, and why is that? It's not just about gaining advantage. It's because the president is skeptical, frankly, of alliances. He has a zero-sum view of the world described by his advisors, and by the way, his supporters and his critics, because Bannon and Navarro defend this view. But he has this view of allies that it's all transactional. Um, there's very little allowance for history, for shared values, uh, even for sharing of intelligence for counterterror. H.R. McMaster, who was his national security advisor, told me that he had real frustration with the president because he couldn't convince the president of the benefits of these alliances. Uh, and it's interesting because Fiona Hill, uh, the president's, of course, senior advisor on Russia, said that in many ways he's more hostile to allies than he is to adversaries. Why is that? Because in his view, we've done so much for allies, protecting Europe with NATO in his view, uh, protecting Canada, uh, protecting Japan with our uh, nuclear umbrella, that they owe us more. It's a remarkable view. In a way, he, de he demands more of them and has a ne more negative view of them than adversaries because he's like, that's what adversaries do. They screw with us. Uh, but our allies, when they screw with us, they're screwing with us and they owe us too. Um, it's a remarkable view. And that's not just something that kind of stays below the surface. We see that in the president's decision making. It is why uh, the president can summarily withdraw 9,000 troops from Germany in a fit of pique with the German chancellor in a move literally no one in his government supports or defends. Uh, not in the Pentagon, no Republicans on Capitol Hill either, save for maybe Rand Paul, uh, because the president doesn't see the obligation there. It has effects. It may, in a second term in partic particular, lead to withdrawal of some or all of U.S. forces from the Korean Peninsula, remarkably, given the attention he's given in North Korea, but because he looks at South Korea and says, what have you done for us? Why do we owe you anything? Um, that is the madman theory in action. Um, I, I want to uh, just close on, on another section here because what, what strikes me about uh, Trump and this approach is that the things that his critics find damaging, his defenders don't don't so much uh, say it ain't happening, right? Contradict you, just say it's actually a good thing, you know. That uh, what what some see as folly, his defenders see as wisdom. Part of this kind of three dimensional chess, and you know, it's all working out in the end. Uh, just going to read a closing uh, line here. In trying to crystallize it for his foreign policy, I keep coming back to one phrase used by former ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich. In a speech at Georgetown University in February 2020, she described his approach as, quote, an amoral, keep them guessing foreign policy that substitutes threats, fear, and confusion for trust. For Ambassador Ivanovich, it was clearly a criticism but interestingly, it was not far off from the description some of his allies used to praise his approach. As with so many things Trump, where some see folly, others see virtue. Americans will have to decide for themselves if they share that vision of the country. Uh, so that's a brief introduction to the Madman Theory uh, as innovated, modified, espoused by President Trump, uh, and as seen by people who served him. And I, and I look forward to your questions.
This is wonderful. Jim Shudo, thank you so much. We appreciate the, uh, the briefing. Uh, Jim Shudo is CNN correspondent. His new book is called The Madman Theory, Trump Takes on the World, um, which of course the madman there is not a clinical assessment, more of a metaphor. Um, and uh, Jim Shudo, we're delighted to have you. If you have a question for Mr. Shudo, please text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can tweet it at the City Club and we will work it into the program. Um, I want to ask you this question that came in. Uh, if, the pre if the Trump presidency heads, as polls indicate, to its end, what must the next administration do to bring the country back into compliance with not only the rule of law, so there's, that's one question really, but the vital role it once played as a beacon of hope, security, and leadership in the world. That's a, that's a large, it large is. Well, question. For, the first question is, of course, what happens in November, right? We don't, we don't know. Um, I will say that just holding out that possibility that his advisors, much like John Bolton has said, uh, believe that, for instance, on a NATO, right, that, you know, the, the half measures become full measures, right? That instead of just withdrawing some troops, the president might just out and out withdraw from the alliance. Um, and that is a consistent concern I heard from a lot of advisors that, that things were that were some somewhat half measures during his first term, go whole hog in the second term. You know, not just a reduction of forces in Afghanistan, but they're all gone. Not just a reduction of forces in Syria, but they're all gone. Damn the consequences. Um, look at the South Korean Peninsula. Uh, look at other agreements with Canada and elsewhere. So that's a concern. Let's set that aside for a moment. If he is, if he loses, what is the, you know, what does the next president need to do? I mean, listen, you know, you can imagine a speech soon after he takes office from Joe Biden, reiterating American commitment to NATO and other alliances, uh, visits to shake the hands of the folks, and you know, e either a reversal of um, decisions or, or stopping in it their tracks of decisions that the president made. For instance, the withdrawal of troops from Germany takes time. And I've spoken to folks at the Pentagon who are kind of winking and nodding and saying, well, there's not a lot we could do before November, hoping against hope that they don't have to withdraw those forces. Um, so, you know, some some of that could be in a speech, some of that could be in moves uh, that are reversed. Here's, here's the problem is that, you know, confidence like, with anything, even in your personal and professional lives, right? It's easily lost, difficult to gain, uh, difficult to build and difficult to gain back. What is, you know, look at the Iranian nuclear deal, for instance. The U.S. negotiated that under one president with its allies and with China and Russia and with Iran, pulled out after one election. What's the guarantee that the next, if there's a Iran deal 2.0 or North Korean nuclear deal on the same model, that that lasts only as long as the next election, right? That we're, you know, we are locked in something of a pendulum swing in, in policies in this country, not just domestically, but, you know, under Trump at least, and it remains to be seen if he's an anomaly, but under Trump at least, that things that used to be bipartisan lasting positions of the U.S. government have become partisan things, you know? So, those questions can be partially answered by statements and moves initially, but they'll only really be answered over time, over years, as to whether, you know, the U.S. can be counted on in the same way going forward as it has in the past. You know, uh, just reading, I'll tell you, it was like reading the commentary, the reaction to Navarro's comments on Canada, now that that's sort of become a story in Canada in the last 24 hours. You know, the military commanders, they're up in arms, right? I mean, they commanded troops that lost a couple hundred guys in Afghanistan after NATO, by the way, invoked the uh, mutual defense article after 9-11 to protect the U.S., right? Um, so, you know, statements and, and decisions, et cetera, help, but some of this, da some of this damage is, doesn't go away right away, right? And, and you, you can understand why folks would have questions, that, that, that lasting questions based on our current politics here. Do the does he run the risk? This is another question that, that came in um, to was actually texted to me, not to the other number that people are supposed to text questions to, which is fine. But um, when does the madman become the boy who cried wolf? If he keeps making these yeah. threats yes. and not fulfilling them, do people take him? Do you, yeah. do you run the risk of nobody taking him seriously? Well, based on the record, no one really did. It didn't work. You know, it didn't work. Nor, you know, 
the view, and it's interesting to hear Pompeo try to make the case for this last night, you know, that, uh, you know, the success with North Korea, I mean, it's just comical, right? It, it's, you know, they started the North Korea, you know, maximum pressure negotiate, you know, fire and fury, switch to diplomacy with this phrase, complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization. They haven't used that phrase for years, right? Because it didn't move one iota in that direction. In fact, today, North Korea has more, not less, nuclear weapons than when this started. Iran is closer to a nuclear weapon than they were when this started. China and Russia have not backed off any of their malign activities, right? I mean, the president talk about this a lot in the book, right? That one of the most consistent features of his foreign policy is deference to Russia. Well, that clearly has not deterred Russia. I mean, they just poisoned the opposition leader. I mean, with barely a blip from the U.S. And China, yes, the Trump administration has stood up and uh, stood up to China, but China has not been intimidated either. So who were who the, the great intimidated by this, right? Who's backed off in the face of this new respect for America? I mean, cite the examples, and they can't really, based on the, the last chapter of the book is before and after. I do it for each of these countries, where, where it stood four years ago, where it stands today, and the record's pretty clear that the approach has failed. So even Bannon and Navarro couldn't couldn't cite a real, I mean, because people will often say, you know, look at China, he stood up yeah. to China, look at how he brought North Korea to the table. Um, but even in those cases, there's there's no real gains to be to be well, claim Trump will claim that privately, though, I'll tell you, the hawks, the China hawks in this administration that include Bannon and Navarro considered that phase one trade deal a capitulation, right? Didn't get anything of the big picture stuff. I mean, they put a nice spin on it mm -hmm. uh, public, but in private, they consider it a walk back, right? Uh, and they will blame the kind of Mnuchin camp. They, they sort of view him as a, as a China dove, but at the end of the day, it's the president's deal. So, so little progress to cite on China, except the fact that the U.S. is standing up to them more. But in terms of effect of that, you know, the, the, the trade manipulation continues. China has effectively grabbed Hong Kong, right, in, in the last couple of months. Mm -hmm. uh, so whether it's changed the, the fundamental dynamic, there's very little proof of that. And then it's much easier on North Korea or Iran just to, to say, okay, what you had then and what you have now. This question from an audience member, and if you have a question, text it to 330-541-5794. Uh, I think it was claimed during the RNC that President Trump brought home a record-setting number of American political prisoners. If so, does that prove the efficacy of his foreign policy approach? Well, it, on that front, yeah. Uh, it, Credit where credit is due, and I and I bend over backwards to give credit where it's due. And I I'm someone who spent years in China, for instance, decades actually, sadly, um, witnessing China's misbehavior in terms of trade, uh, stealing from U.S. companies, uh, treatment of dissidents, etc. Uh, and and I and I write a some, somewhat heartfelt section of the book introdu introducing that topic based on my own experience of watching the U.S. effectively capitulate to China during my time uh, when I was there as a diplomat. So. So I, in terms of credit, the standing up matters, right? It does. It's just much harder to see where that has changed the fundamental dynamic. On bringing hostages home, yes, this administration has had success on that. Listen, the administration, I talk about this in the book, took a step in killing Qasem Soleimani, which previous Republican and Democratic presidents uh, hesitated to do, did not do. They thought the consequences could be, would be too dangerous. And kind of got away with it, right? Not not without the conflagration that some had predicted. The question is, has that reduced, not well, certainly not reduced Iranian progress towards a nuclear weapon that has gone forward and it hasn't, that you can cite reduced uh, Iranian military aggression in the region, right? So, so you know, you got to give credit where credit is due, but then if you want to judge the policy as a whole, you have to look at each of these national security uh, spheres and say, have they moved the ball forward or not? And, and if you look at the record, it's just hard to find big picture where they've done that. You spoke before about the um, about the kind of transactional nature or the way in which Donald Trump views things and views foreign policy as transactional. Um, has he has that if you look at it through that lens, has he gained anything or has the U.S. gained anything by this 
by treating NATO or treating our alliances as transactional? Got some more money, right? I mean, the, the, those countries have, many of those countries have spent more on defense. Mm. That's good, right? And, and Bush and Obama were pushing them too, and they, they didn't do it fast enough. At the same time, you have weakened NATO, you've re reduced a force presence there at a time of greater, not lesser Russian aggression. Just watch what's happening in Belarus right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and raised questions in the mind of our own allies as to the U.S. commitment to that alliance, right? Alliances are, they're feel documents, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're only as good as, as people's confidence in them, the people who are in the alliance and the people who the alliance is allied against. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the president has publicly raised questions about whether the U.S. really needs to abide by the mutual defense portion of that treaty, right? You know Putin is listening to those comments. Um, and what does he do to then test those limits, right? Um, look, for instance, about Russian interference in Belarus right now. The U.S. president has had nothing definitive about that yet. Yeah, I'm looking at it. I'm concerned about it. Russia only listens to what the president says, right? You know, the, the one statement this week, I think, came from a, the spokesman for the U.S. ambassador to Russia. They don't care, right? If, the, if Trump is saying he doesn't really care that much, what's going to hold him back, you know? So you got more money, but your own allies, uh, France and Germany, are saying they can't rely on the U.S. anymore. That's mm -hmm. concerning, you know? Uh, you may squeeze more money out of South Korea for the deployment there, but keep in mind, you know, your standoff there is with North Korea. What is, how does North Korea perceive a fissure in the alliance between the U.S. and South Korea? Likely as an advantage, certainly not intimidated by it. What is gained? Uh, you know, for, for, for what you, so transactional in dollar terms, fine. What is it done in terms of U.S. national security and the national security of our partners? Different calculation and hard to see where the gain is and, and pretty easy to identify the damage. Mm -hmm. Here's another question for you. Could you address the standing of the U.S. in East Asia? We seem more isolated and alone as we look west than in a long time. Who is standing with us? In East Asia. So, I mean, that was a fundamental miscalculation, this administration, you know, that if your focus was going to be on standing up to China, very reasonably so, you'd imagine you'd be stronger if you got your allies on board with it because they have the same concerns. That was the TPP, right? Uh, but the president views all these trade treaties, or at least ones negotiated by his predecessors, uh, as unfair or the worst deals ever. So he pulled out of that just as he was launching a justified attack on Chinese trade practices, would that have been stronger if you had the allies on board as you were as you were doing that? Um, there is, you know, you know, the go it alone approach um, underplays your hand. Uh, I mean, his own diplomats talk about talk about that in the book, um, or on North Korea, right? You know. You'd imagine you'd, you'd be stronger. And actually, early on, um, the Trump administration, I mean, China was already on board with sanctions. Uh, early on, got China on board for, for a more forceful um, policing of those trade restrictions. But as the U.S. and China kind of blew up against each other, that partnership has weakened. You know, all these things are connected, right? Uh, I mean, the other thing to keep in mind is, you know, those U.S. forces in South Korea are not just about North Korea. They're also about China, right? It's, it's a force presence that China watches warily, and it's about force projection for the U.S. there. So if you're threatening to withdraw those forces, kind of uh, punish the South Koreans into paying more, kind of use that as weakness in that alliance. And uh, Joseph Yun and others talk a lot about in my book how South Korea, seeing that, has been moving closer to China. And that's a worry for the U.S. Not, not that they're going to join arms with them, but South Korea's had to play a double game there because China's, you know, they're right on China's doorstep and they've seen South Korea make greater overtures to China. So, you, you know, in the midst of this, where's the grand strategy in there? If China is your main goal of hemming them in, but you've exiled your allies on the trade issue and on the, the key national security dispute, North Korea, you've created bigger space. 
uh, with your closest ally on that, South Korea. You know, it's about connecting the dots. And that's where, you know, his advisors can talk all about, you know, banging the drum for, for holding China's feet to the fire. Sorry for like using multiple cliches in one sentence, but, you know, they, they can bang the drum, but where, where is the strategic advantage? And, and that's where they, you know, they just have more trouble making the argument. So in the end, nobody's, there, there are no Asian nations standing with us. We've just, it sounds like what you're saying without actually coming out and fully saying it is that we've simply further, further isolated ourselves. Yes. Yes. I'm not saying no one's standing with us. Uh, but the allies that, or the oh, former but, allies who may be, who may be standing with us are sort of standing with us out of inertia, not yeah. out of renewed commitment. And you're creating some, you know, you're creating distance, right, between you and your allies, certainly with South Korea, Japan too, right? I mean, you know, the president is, when he was out in Asia and I was there for, you know, for all three of these summits with, with, uh, with Kim, you know, he'll just say in public, do we really need this defense treaty with Japan? You know, how does, how does China view that? He'll say, why don't we just give Japan nukes? Well, the reason we don't is because we don't want to create a bigger nuclear arms race out there. And then South Korea thinks they need nukes. And before you know, I mean, there are a whole host of reasons you have it, but the president's thinking is like, ah, screw it. You know, just let them have it. I don't mean to laugh uh, at what you're saying, but he very much lives in this sort of Zen-like moment in the present, he yeah. he's uh, does it does the a ahistorical philosophy with which he operates does that inform this as well? Yeah, he doesn't read right. I mean, it's just he doesn't, and his sense of history is frankly often wrong. Um, I'll tell a couple stories about this. I mean, I, I tell a story in the book about how. His uh, national security team realized very early on he was not reading his his intelligence briefings. So under H.R. McMaster, they came up with an idea. He's like, okay, let's, and those briefings, by the way, are just a few pages. We're not talking about like 100 pages. So McMaster's team boiled them down to three bullet points on note cards, hoping that that would get the president to at least absorb the most important information. Kind of like Axios version. Exactly. Axios version of our nation's most sensitive intelligence. Imagine that. So they do that, and then they realize pretty quickly he's only reading the first two of three bullet points. Two of three bullet points. So they start concentrating the most important information in the first two bullet points and kind of use the third one as a throwaway line, hoping he'd at least get through those two. Then they begin to realize he's not reading those either. And they know that because in the briefings, when they would bring up stuff of import, uh, it would be clear that it was the first time he was hearing it. So that's a, it's a problem. I mean, it goes to, you know, with this latest Russian bounty stuff, the fact that uh, that was in his written briefing, not his oral one, you know, he can, I kind of believe that he didn't read it in there, right? That's that now, then it was public and then his advisors clearly did brief him and then he dismissed it out of hand. So you had that too. He's like, oh, it's another Russia hoax problem. Um, but, you know, the idea that he didn't read, you know, something like that in there is plausible to me because we know that he doesn't read, um, doesn't bother. Uh, the, um, you know, bigger issue, right, a sense of history. He doesn't have a great sense of history um, and he's he's wrong on some stuff. I mean, I tell the story in the book that, and he's often influenced by, by several people in his ear which is what his team would talk about a lot. You know, there were folks on the phone, whether it was Tucker Carlson or old business friends or Vladimir Putin. U.S. intelligence believes that Vladimir Putin has been an influence on a few things in terms of the president's view of the world. One, his hostility towards European leaders, I'm talking Western European leaders, you know, NATO allies, Merkel, et cetera, that that is, has influenced the president's kind of distrust of them, dismissal of them, anger with them, but also even that Putin has influenced Trump's understanding of World War II, the history of World War II. So when you, when you hear Trump a couple of months ago, if, if you don't remember these comments, look them up, say, well, you know, Germany, well, and this is true, of course, Germany was the aggressor in World War II, but that Russia was always kind of a peaceful player in that war. Well, that forgets 1939 and Von Ribbentrop, right? I mean, you know, splitting up Poland in, in 1939. You know, by the way, that retelling of the history of the war is right in line with Kremlin talking points, Kremlin revisionism about about the actual, you know, uh, out, not outcome, but how the war played out, how it started, etc. 
and his own advisors talk about how that's one influence on him. You know, that's a is that Jim is that coming through television through like these you know RT and OAN. Um, some he definitely watches a lot of TV. It influences his um, his view of the world, right? It, it influences policy decisions. You know, stuff he sees there. And it goes in both directions, right? Like he influences their coverage, but they influence his. I mean, I tell a story in the book about how when the president had initially ordered retaliation against Iran for shooting down that drone over international waters, uh, you know, as the planes were in the air, you'll remember he called back the attack. Um, his official explanation was he just found out that that retaliation risked 150 Iranian lives, and he judged that was not a reciprocal response to shooting down a drone. That's a reasonable, that's a reasonable assessment. Um, you or I can make the same decision. Um, fact is, he would have been briefed on that at the very beginning. It would not have been news once the planes are in the air. But what, what did happen is that he had a conversation with Tucker Carlson, who told him, if you get us into a war in Iran, you're going to be toast in the next election because you said you were going to be the man who, who ended the wars, you know, the endless wars. So you wait, how do you know that? Uh, that's the conversation that happened. Well, it's, and I'm not the only one to report that. The New York Times reported that too. Mm -hmm. From pe people who knew firsthand. Jim Shudo's book is Madman Theory, and you can get a 20% discount if you're a member and you buy it at the at our friends at Maxbacks on Coventry Road. If you have a question for Jim, tweet it at the City Club or text it to 330-541-5794. This conversation gets more and more fascinating, Jim, the deeper we get into it. Uh, another question for you, what impact has Trump foreign policy had on multilateralism and how is this problematic? He's a... Uh... He likes to go it alone, right? Um, in trade agreements, um, you know, in interactions, uh, peace agreements, for instance. Remember, if you look at Middle East peace, right, the, the president early on had talked about kind of a grand agreement with the Palestinians. He put Jared Kushner in charge of it. What we got last week uh, or the week before was this UAE-Israel agreement, which is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Um, but it certainly doesn't improve the situation between Israel and Palestine, um, so you know there's a lot there's a lot of one on one, which you can argue in certain circumstances works right, uh, and in other circumstances it weakens your hand. I mean, China being an obvious example, uh, or even you know Syria, right? You know when it's one on one discussion with Turkish the Turkish president who has their their own interests and frankly not aligned with U.S. interests there, and you're not bringing uh, you know, your Syrian Kurdish partners into it, or even the European allies, uh, you look at that, by any measure, Erdogan got the better of that deal, right? Uh, Turkey got the better of the deal, didn't seem to serve U.S. interests or, or U.S. allies' interests on the ground. Uh, you know, for all the talk of the, the unilateralism, tough guy kind of thing, getting the U.S. more rather than less, when you watch it play out, that's often not the case. Jim Shudo, when you um, when you spoke earlier about uh, military advisors slow walking his orders um, and State Department uh, State Department staffers kind of slow walking uh, commands and orders, um, it brought to mind the phrase "the deep state," which you did not utter, but I am I am injecting into this conversation, and then um, and it's connected to this question from one of our audience members: if reelected. How does Trump find people with international experience and expertise to serve, which is not necessarily something he's prized in this current administration, or will they only be figures with their own political aspirations, as in Nikki Haley and uh, Secretary Pompeo? Yeah. Thank you. Well, Nikki Haley left, right? I mean, she got out. She's already gone. Uh, would she come back in a second term? I don't know. I mean... Listen, I mean, as you watch it play out over time, he's had more trouble filling these roles with people with deep credentials, qualifications, right? Um, he, you know, more and more has exiled folks who challenge him, you know, it's, it, and it's hard to identify who in the current mix is willing to tell him inconvenient information or disagree with him. There's more agreement at the top, uh, a tightening circle, right? And by the way, 
a lot of acting folks in positions that are meant to be Senate confirmed. I mean, another side of this, right, it's not just the president. The Senate, under GOP control, has basically ceded its constitutional authority to uh, to confirm senior-level cabinet officials, right? I mean, I, I, I've lost count of how many are acting, but they don't even care, right? Just let it go. They don't challenge. And that's its own powers there. It's pretty remarkable. Um, in a second term, I don't know. I mean, you, you have a lot of people who stuck it out. Well, you have a lot of people who stuck it out because they're true believers. You have others who, and you know, th these aren't necessarily black and white lines. There's some gray areas, but you do have others who believe they're kind of doing their duty for their country by sticking around, if not at the senior level, at the middle level, or you know, just below that. Um, but there have been less and less over time. People have their limits. So in a second, second term, I don't know. I don't know. And a lot of these folks have aspirations for 2024, the ones who've stayed at the senior level, like a Pompeo, Haley, who got out. You know, at some point, they, they're, they're going to look out for number one. I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, Fox has pretty much been rated at this point for senior level positions, but I guess there are always more. Right? Um, you, in the book, you talk about Russia, Ukraine, China, North Korea, and Syria. Um, you don't talk about Mexico at all, where I think many of his supporters would yeah. find there has been success, that he can declare uh, some sort of win uh, in reducing the number of undocumented immigrants, in erecting a wall, um, in reducing the number of, of immigrants who are and refugees who are coming from Central America through Mexico, yeah. Mexico to to uh, to keep to he's he's you know he has the remain in Mexico uh, policy. Do you want to talk about his relationship with our North American counterpart, our North American uh, neighbors to the south? It depends on what you call success, right? I mean, yes, reduced illegal immigration, but also legal immigration. I mean, our our refugee intake into this country, you know, richest country in the world, is down to nearly zero. Uh, I've had conversations with Stephen Miller, who's his kind of Svengali on, on immigration policy. He wants to reduce legal immigration, legal immigration. He does. And, and they have successfully uh, on many fronts, uh, whether it be refugees or, or even policies instituted under COVID, but policies that were already kind of bubbling prior to COVID. And, use now. I mean, I've spoken with Stephen Miller. He makes a case for a less diverse America, frankly. The rationale is that it's better for the American worker because there's less competition. It is a blood and soil argument, man. It is. I, I mean, I've sat down face to face from him and he describes what, you know, vision of America is. It's it's not a conspiracy theory. I mean, he'll say it mm -hmm. explicitly in his public comments as well, but it's about a vision of America that's being uh, diluted, right, by the more foreigners who come in. It's not a it's not a caricature of it. It's the way it plays out. I mean, listen, I mean, the Muslim ban, uh, you know, mm -hmm. it, it was it was predicated on a security risk. It is still there, and that's largely been dropped. It's about fewer Muslims coming into the country. Right. Mm -hmm. And and that policy has been expanded since then. If you look at uh, this happened with Nigeria and elsewhere just in the last year or so. But uh, I mean, remember the comments about shithole countries. Right. You know, there are non security explanations given for reducing the number of folks coming from those countries, too. It's explicit. Mm -hmm. It's not implicit. It's explicit. Explicit. It gets lost in the kind of uh, cacophony of news out of there. Mm -hmm. Listen, you know, personally, I get the, the um, I think we all do, get, get the uh, push to reduce illegal immigration. But an essential part of it is reducing legal immigration as well. It's about a vision of the country. And, and a vision of the country carried out by people who are, I mean, we're all children. We're either immigrants, children, or grandchildren, or great-grandchildren of immigrants, depending on how far back you go. I mean... Mm -hmm. Trump's family, uh, his wife's family, uh, you know, and so sure. on. By the way, chain, chain chain migration, as it's known, was exactly how. Uh, anyway. Yes, how, how the history. first lady brought her family. Well, I think I headed it, but just uh, read I, yeah. the public comments of these folks on, on what the policy is and what the attention, attention, attention is. And it's not just about the legal immigration. And I apologize for my lack of a poker face, but the blood and soil are, you know, phrase is very much is, you know, connected to to Europe's Nazi past. And um, and it's a it's an upsetting phrase. It's a trigger. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, what should we make of the president's outreach to India and Prime Minister and Narendra Modi? Um, it's interesting. Yeah. And what are you trying to get in South Asia? What's going on there? He sees a kindred spirit. For the president, you know, his relationships are very personal. Mm -hmm. He believed that his relationship with Kim Jong-un could fundamentally change, you know, the, that, that dynamic there. It didn't work, right? Um, he believed that his relationship with Xi Jinping could change that dynamic too. It didn't, didn't work either. Um, he still praises it sometimes. He believes his personal relationship with Putin can change that dynamic. He thinks it has, but in fact, Russia has become more, not less aggressive over the past four years. And you can see that in a number of fronts, whether it's poisoning people abroad, whether it's interactions between Russian military aircraft and ships with U.S. military aircraft and ships, Russian election interference, right, on a whole host of fronts. So, you know, he imagines the personal relationship can move these things. But when you look at the record, uh, it doesn't. India, no, listen, listen, India's there's a better argument for it, right? I mean, here's a democratic country, uh, the, the uh, and a lot of shared interests. And of course, India has its own tensions with China. So you can imagine strategically, you know, being on the same page with India can help, you know, help counter that relationship. You know, the other bit is the populist bit, right? I mean, this is a president who likes populist leaders and praises them. And Modi has his popular, if you followed it, populist issues at home uh, with the country's hundreds of millions of Muslims, right? Um, and dealings there and the kinds of language he's had. So there, there's some worrisome aspects to it and there's some understandable strategic aspects. Mm -hmm. How much do you attribute his deferment to other national leaders on foreign policy issues to political ignorance? How much to deference to other more experienced authoritarian figures? And how much to a more sinister nature of simply looking out for his own best yeah. interests? That final point is one that is a suspicion his own advisors have. Uh, I'll talk about Russia. I asked everybody about his relationship with Putin and, and why, and then why this deference to Russia in contradiction again to stated US national security policy. Uh, some of his advisors have their own suspicions, they do, about uh, personal motivations there, um, vulnerabilities, they do. Um, I didn't print those in great degree because I didn't want to print stuff that they didn't know as opposed to we're theorizing about. But I will say, uh, and a lot of this is on the record, and you'll see it in the book, that their best explanation, friendliest if you want to call it that, but their best explanation for his uh, affinity for Putin is that he admires him. He just simply admires the man. He envies his power to some degree. And he shares, I touched on this a little earlier in the talk, he shares Putin's nihilistic view of the world, this idea that we're all dirty players in a dirty game. There's no, you know, America's not ex exceptional. Um, we're all dirty players in a dirty game. And it's sort of like, whatever you can win in any interaction is fine. You know, all bets are off, uh, no holds barred. Um, and, you know, there are examples of that. You know, you can see it in his public comments. If you if you remember the interview with Bill O'Reilly back in 2017, you know, O'Reilly pressed him and said, but Putin's a killer. And he said, well, are we any better? More recently with this Afghan bounty intelligence, um, when he was reminded then, this is not the first time Russia has done this in 2018, the U.S. had even harder intelligence. Russia was supplying arms to the Taliban. Uh, the president said, well, we supplied arms to the Taliban in the 80s when the Russians were there. No distinction between U.S. and Russian behavior, even when you, the lives of U.S. forces are on the line. Uh, he just has a, he shares with him a kind of nihilistic view, and he senses some sort of brotherhood there. Now, the view of the president's own senior intelligence officials is that Putin knows that Trump admires him and takes advantage of that, uh, and sometimes with effect. So another personal relationship where his own advisors see the president getting uh, taken advantage of rather than somehow, you know, regenerating respect for American leadership. Jim Shudo is CNN's chief national national security correspondent, anchor of CNN Newsroom, and author of the new book. The Madman Theory, Trump Takes on the World. Jim, thanks for making time for us. We really Thank appreciate you. It. I appreciate all the good questions from you and the folks watching, and I appreciate all of you taking the time. If you do me the honor of uh, reading the book, I would love to hear your, uh, your critiques. 
You can find him on Twitter at Jim Shudo. And if you buy the book over at our friends at Max Bax on Coventry Road uh, in Cleveland Heights, you will receive a 20% discount as long as you're a City Club member. You can uh, check out cityclub.org or email us or check out the member Facebook page for more details. Jim, thank you so much. One more offer, Dan, if you'd like, just since I'm not there in person. If I were there in person, of course, I would sign everybody's copy. Since I can't be, maybe we could arrange, Dan, and I'll talk to Noel as well. I've offered this to other folks. I could get nameplates and then and sign them to people and send them out. If uh, so, if, if folks, you uh, again do me the honor of uh, buying a copy, I'll um, I'll figure out a way to get you a sign. We'll do that. We'll take you up on that yeah. offer. Absolutely. And if you can sign my Kindle version, that would be um, awesome. Fair too. enough. I'll do it. Let me through the screen. <laughs> All right, Jim. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Thanks. Take care, guys. All right. Take care of yourself. Our forum today is part of our Authors in Conversation series, which is sponsored by the John P. Murphy Foundation and by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. Our community partner today is the Cleveland Council on World Affairs. City Club virtual forums are sponsored by Bank of America, the Cleveland Foundation, Eaton, the George Gund Foundation, Key Bank, Nordson, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC along with many other generous members, sponsors, and donors, which you can find at our website at cityclub.org slash thank you. You can join them in supporting our work when you become a member or make a contribution at cityclub.org. I'm Dan Malthrop. Please stay strong. Please stay healthy. Please wash your hands and keep your distance and wear a mask and stay close in your hearts if you can't be close in person. Our forum is adjourned. <laughs>